Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, this is Ollie, telling you about another podcast I host, Unfiltered. It's an interview show. We've talked about sex work, addiction, and battering racists, and we're only a few episodes in. Some of the guests so far, One Direction's Niall Horan, GOAT footballer Viv Miedemar, and Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. Just search Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore wherever you get your podcasts. Am I tough enough? Strong and stable leadership. Total rhubarb. Hell yes, I'm tough enough. Shut the fridge. Not another one. It's the Politics Show podcast. Love podcasts, hate nonsense. It's the Politics Show podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Shmoo! Yes, 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 yes. It's called fashion. Look it up. Um, Ed Campbell, got you. Gotcha. Um, Ed Campbell, the golden boy of politics, Joe, is here. As always, Ed, cheers. Cheers. Hello. Pleasure to have you with us. And we're joined today by Ant Breach, a senior analyst at the Centre for Cities. Ant. Cheers. Thank you for joining us. Cheers. Good to have you with us. Let's have a little... Mm. Yeah, love that. Um, good audio. That is good audio, actually, isn't it? <laughs> ASMR. We should. We could pivot to that. Maybe. I think people would pay you to do that. Maybe better content. Um, this is part of our series of episodes where, in lieu of Prime Minister's questions, we speak to people with big old brains uh, talking about policy issues, how we can make this country better, um, because we had a bit of a slot in the calendar. And that's why Ant is here. So, Ant, thank you so much uh, for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank oh. you for having me on. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you on and uh, to raise the tone, I think, a little bit, Ed. Yeah, little you probably, bit. probably well, agree. Not too much. Yeah, no, 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 too much. We'll keep it... We'll, keep, yeah. keep we'll it. drag you down. <laughs> um, we'll keep it fairly lowbrow. We'll, keep, we'll bring you Good. to our level. Um, so I'll let Ed, I'll let Ed um, kick things off, maybe, then, if you want to uh, yeah. <laughs> start the conversation. Uh, and favourite city? Favourite city? Um, UK or abroad? Oh, both, please. Yeah. Oh, so favourite city in the UK... I'd say probably Liverpool, but I'm biased. You can't tell, but I am from Liverpool. Oh. Uh, I grew up there. Um, maybe abroad, I'd say probably Tokyo is my favourite. So I think just not just 
good for Japanese stuff, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. Um, but also... <laughs> Maybe one of the best yeah. places for Japanese I've heard one of the best. Um, yeah. But also pretty good, I think, in terms of how a city works, right? You think about how large it is. Um, it's the biggest city on earth, but the transport works great. The housing is really cheap. It's really clean. It's really quiet. So there's loads of things going on there that I think are really useful lessons. You're actually probably the right person to ask about this. Is it an urban myth that they designed the Tokyo subway system using um, fungus? You know, they like, I can't remember, they they mapped it out, didn't they? They put like nodes on a map and they got the fungus to realize the most efficient way to travel between the nodes to like eat protein or something. So, So I think that story is like, you can get the fungus to recreate the Tokyo map. Right. So it was all built kind of, you know, in bits and bobs over the 20th century. Uh-huh. But if you highlight kind of where, where the people want to go, like where the suburbs, where the, the job centers, then you put these magical fungus down, it will connect up the, the city, like yeah, the little yeah. Petri dish, uh, in exactly the way that uh, the network does. So Oh, so it already mirrored yeah. it. So we're at least as intelligent as fungus. That's basically. good to know. That's good. It's yeah. good to know. Uh, do, you reckon, do you reckon we're as... Uh, and is definitely yeah. as intelligent as fungus. I'm not sure well, if you and I are as well. I'd like to think that. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a spongy <laughs> fungus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So why don't we start then, Ant, by you telling us about the Centre for Cities and the work. Yeah, I'm sure thing. Do. So um, we're a non-partisan think tank. Uh, we were founded about... 17 years ago or so, so in the mid noughties mm. And we were founded because um, our founder, kind of Lord Sainsbury, had noticed there was a gap in the market for um, British policy debates about a lot of the new urban economics that was coming out of the United States at that period in time. And while there were other organizations that really focus on architecture or on design or on kind of urban living, kind of in a lifestyle sense, we're really focused on cities as local economies, right? So people move to cities to get a job. And the role that cities play as local economies, so the things you know you experience within a few miles of your house and, and your workplace, has a big, massive impact on people's life chances and their overall standard of living. So thinking about how cities and local economies contribute to the national economy and how those then urban policy problems play out at the national level is why we exist, basically. Mm, nice. Okay. We'll talk about that in some detail. But since Ed asked you your favorite city, it's actually been gnawing away at me what your favorite city is. My favorite city? Yeah. In the UK? Yeah. Go on. Glasgow. But that's your hometown. You, both of you said yes. your hometowns. If you promise, if you promise, you're not from a city. No. So I think a market town. Yeah. So I, I, is there, is there I, space I, I, for market towns in the centre of cities? Well, we, we we have some papers on um, you know, you, towns. You fobbed me off yeah. there. Yeah. So, <laughs> t- towns and cities, but we, you know, it turns out that you know towns have a really important relationship with their cities. Right? Okay. Nice. So uh, they're they're linked together. You hear that? But you hear that? I'm I important think, too. If I think if someone said, "What's your favourite market town?" You'd say your hometown. Uh, yeah, I probably would. Oh, so I think yeah. I, I don't think it's a, it's an un, it's an it's an No one's ever asked me what my favorite market town is. <laughs> yeah, though, to be fair, I don't have one. To be fair, <laughs> yeah. What's, but, your, what's your favorite city, Ollie? Uh, Belfast. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, that's yeah, a good one. It is. Oh, good one. Yeah, good city. Three, I always think that those three cities are quite similar. In there, yeah. whenever I go to each of them, I think Glasgow reminds me of Belfast, and Liverpool, Belfast reminds me of Liverpool and Glasgow. Mm. Are they, are they similar? You are the expert. Um, I'd say probably. <laughs> Economics-wise, somewhat, probably all underperforming a little bit, mm. but also got that kind of Victorian inheritance, right? This kind of big, grand, you know, sandstone kind of, you know, uh, imperial buildings, right? But mm-hmm. now, probably not quite inheriting them uh, as much as uh, much as they could or should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. No, I love Belfast. Um, nice people. Good food as well, actually. Mm-hmm. Great seafood in Belfast. Yeah. Good pubs. Yeah. One hundred percent. That's the main thing, really. <laughs> that. Uh, I, I, how central? How central are we thinking pubs are to the economy of cities? 
Uh, I'd say pretty pretty central. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd say like downstream of some of the other stuff. You know, there's sort of the the bread and butter of transport, housing policy, jobs. But the difference between a good city and a bad city, you know, you know when you arrive, right? You know, what's the nightlife? What's the atmosphere? Yeah. What's going on? What are the vibes like? The vibe check. Mm -hmm. That's actually not a bad idea. You should put that on some of your future reports in cities. I think vibe check. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, courtesy <laughs> politics. New co-authors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so. I think maybe it makes sense, particularly for our audience, uh, to talk a little bit about housing. Sure. Um, I know you've done work particularly on sort of flexible planning, and maybe we'll get into that. But mm -hmm. maybe, maybe if you could sort of put the, the policy explanation on why so many people, whether it's in rented accommodation or whether it's in uh, their first-time buyers or whether they ha actually own a house and they're now getting shafted by the mortgage market, why does housing feel like such a... A crisis point in the country could you put some some meat on the bones yeah. of that feeling that a lot of people have right now so i think kind of if you zoom out a bit and you think about you know all around kind of a developed world you know housing is always a massive part of people's budgets right people normally should spend about a third of their income on um on housing right and in terms of your lifestyle your quality of life um obviously makes a huge difference to you know when you're at home um but also kind of what jobs you can access um you know the neighborhoods you're in has a massive impact on all kinds of things that are downstream from uh, the actual property itself and what you're paying. But where we're actually at in, in the UK is because the housing crisis and the shortage is so bad, you've got all of these other things kind of um, that are downstream that, that are affected by housing also now feels so difficult and so challenging for like millions of people, especially young people, uh, to access in, in modern Britain. And nowhere is that more acute than in those places with the most opportunities so places like London, places like Brighton, places like Bristol, where housing is especially expensive, um, but is now it now means that those places are now especially difficult for people to get into and live a normal quality of life. Right? You know, mm -hmm. people aren't asking for much. You know, they're not asking for you know massive palaces or, or Bentleys or you know uh, penthouse apartments. <laughs> yeah, some I'm, people are. I'm asking so, for a some, palace, some, yeah, some yeah. people are climbing the ladder, getting the way up there. <laughs> I have but, no problem yeah. with the government providing yeah. me with that yes. with those things. Yeah. I don't know. How, don't know whether you turn your nose up at that, Ed. I don't know. It was like the Tony Blair. I don't mind. People getting filthy rich. I don't mind people giving getting Bentleys. Yeah, 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 yeah. mass state produced Bentleys. 100%. I imagine the quality of Bentleys would probably decrease. reduce quite a lot <laughs> if there was massive state produced. Turn Bentley into Rover. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> look how that went. Um, okay, is it is it an oversimplification though to say it's a supply problem? Um, no. So um, I think obviously supply and demand both matter, um, but if you look around. The world, right? You know, the supply and demand dynamics play out everywhere. Um, we have had over the past 15, 20 years, kind of interest rates have been falling. So houses generally have been getting more expensive. That's obviously now gone to a very sharp reverse over the past 18 months. Houses have become, you know, cheaper, but not, you know, more affordable because interest rates have gone up. But when we look at why the UK has an unusually bad housing situation internationally, uh, it really does seem to be because we have an unusually bad planning system compared to um, other countries around the world. And that all wraps up together um, means that we don't build as much as other European countries. The houses we do build are often in the wrong parts of the country. And the houses we do build are often of quite poor quality as well. So thinking about how we solve that supply problem, you know, both the quantity and the quality sides of the supply problem, is really fundamental for, for tackling, um, not just kind of making rents a bit cheaper, but then fixing loads of other problems in modern Britain as well. Mm -hmm. 
And so uh, what are those changes? What's wrong with the planning system right now and how does it need to change? So kind of the key thing is that the planning system in England, which has existed since 1947, is highly discretionary. So what that means is it's every decision is taken case by case. So if you're a builder, you can follow the local plan, you know, letter by letter, and you can still be denied planning permission by the council. Mm. Compared to most other countries around the world, which have rules-based zoning systems, where instead, if you follow the rules, then you can build. And now that might sound like a really subtle difference, but that has massive, massive effects on the behavior of builders, the kind of the supply of the land market, and importantly, also the behavior of councils in terms of thinking about, you know, if they've got like NIMBY boomers kind of breathing down their neck saying, we don't want houses, you know, we want as few houses as possible. You know, they're going to think, well, actually, you know, can I sh- shave off uh, or even block entirely these mm. new homes that, you know, they'll often no need to be built, but also with one eye on the election as well, they'll be thinking, actually, I need to build as few as possible. Surely the NIMBY boomers will find a way to stop. Like, <laughs> we yeah. move to the zonal system. Yeah. Presumably there's, has to, there's going to be some role for public consultation yes. or, you know, we can't, we can't just fucking stick houses wherever we want to. No, sadly. But <laughs> <laughs> soon. Soon. One day. Oh. Um, One day, Simba, this will all be suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. Yeah. dictatorship yeah. of a yeah. city. Yeah. You'll enjoy it. It's four million homes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, they must, there must be some, some outlet yeah. for them to have that. Where does that, yeah. how does that happen? It is when they, when yeah. they put their heads in front of the wheels. <laughs> of the yeah. Yeah. So when you look around the world, you know, there are different kinds of zoning system. Um, so a lot of the ones we have in the United States are pretty inflexible. So they actually have, uh, you know, they only allow big detached houses and they don't allow anything else. So if you're thinking about those questions of urban living, you know, how do we allow people to kind of live closer to each other, have the benefits of, you know, nice restaurants, kind of cafes, walkable living, all that stuff. That kind of zoning is quite bad for that. Um, so a lot of it does come down to the, um, you know, the rules that are set by national government in terms of what you can and you can't build in a particular zone. Um, but I think, you know, in, in terms of that kind of consultation, there is absolutely a role in, in the saying, all right, you know, people of the community, what do you want and what do you not want? Oh, we want to protect Bluebell Wood, but we don't really mind building on, you know, Bogsworth Farm, for instance. Mm. So thinking about how we front load that consultation and having that in the creation of a local plan, rather than every time someone wants to build like a shed or a conservatory or, or whatever, something's, things more complicated than that. That's the kind of, I think, cultural change the country needs where instead of that kind of case-by-case approach, again, we're thinking about what are the big trade-offs we're making in terms of land development and, uh, and the housing crisis. I guess, yeah, so instead of, um, if in the same way that the, the planning system is discretionary, you don't give people the opportunity to oppose development on every single basis. Yeah. You set... Because I think, I assume you probably make the argument to people, you say, we need houses in the town. Most people probably go, yeah, we do need houses yeah. in the town. They accept that. It's yes. just, they go, not near me. Yes. Yeah. And if you have that consultation at the beginning and you get the consent for, you know, whether, I don't know, we're going to zone here for residential yeah. and eventually if it gets signed off at that point, they can't, there's presumably no room for them to stop it yeah. at that point. It's so there's two reasons for that. So one is that you get a wider vo- range of voices in, in the actual consultation because, you know, part of the problem with these NIMBY boomers showing up is it's, it's only them, right? <laughs> you know, people who are, you know, young people, renters, you know, people still living with their parents, you know, people who are homeless, they aren't showing up on a Thursday evening to, you know, get yelled at by, in, in a town hall by a lot of people who, who don't want them mm-hmm. living near them. So that's kind of one element. But then the other element as well is that actually, if you introduce that certainty into the process, you can actually mitigate a lot of the problems that people do have with development, which really often come down to infrastructure. So, you know, when people want new develop or a new development is being proposed, people will often say, 
I don't really mind it, but I'm really worried about traffic or, you know, what about GP surgeries or school places, et cetera. Part of the problem is that the planning system is really bad at actually doing planning, right? You know, ideally it would be like SimCity or something or City Skylines, <laughs> right? Where you've got your map, you put down your zones for like, you know, residential or commercial, et cetera. And you realize, oh, the school is now full. You know, we need to build a school alongside that. Because the planning system is actually all about stopping development and trying to build as little as possible, it really, really struggles to line up new infrastructure with new houses. And people understandably get pissed off. And, uh, you know, having a system which is more certain would make it much easier for councils to deliver infrastructure alongside those new houses. I, for one, would quite like it if building cities was like SimCity. Mm, fun. I loved that game. Yeah. Presumably you were quite into that. I was, yeah, also yeah. quite a lot, yeah. <laughs> part of the interview. <laughs> Show us your biggest build. <laughs> what are the amenities like? Yeah. Um, okay, nice. And actually, that's give me, maybe we'll have to edit this out, but this give me an idea about Yimbies because presumably there must be people who do go to these town halls to argue with NIMBY boomers that's right. on yep. every occasion. Yes. Sport. So we should go. That's a good blood yeah. sport. We should, that is like blood yeah. sport, yeah. I'm uh, into that. Yeah, you should, should go to the Politics Joe podcast kind of go along to... Uh, Live. Yeah. yeah. We could commentate yeah. on it like yeah. sport. Yeah. <laughs> Unreal. <laughs> There's some like, what's the most low stakes town hall we could go to? But like development for like one extension yeah. in rural Bedfordshire. Yeah. Mm. Is, is Bedfordshire rural? Yeah. Where is it? It is. Okay. pretty well. Yeah. Arguably it should be more urban. It should be maybe... <laughs> To the tune of four million houses. Uh, just in bed for sure. How acute is city? That's actually, that's a, that's a good point though, right? Um, do we need to densify cities? Do we need more suburbia? Do we need to expand the humble market towns of this country? <laughs> need the market cities. <laughs> yeah. what, what, how do you see um, that development happening? Yeah, basically, so we'd say that cities need to grow both up and also out. Okay. So when you look, um, again, at British cities compared to... Um, you know, over European cities, you know, you'll, you'll see with your eyeballs as you're wandering around, you know, European cities have much more kind of five-story, six-story flats, um, you know, within kind of the urban core of, of a lot of these places. British cities tend not to have that. You know, as you get outside the city centre, even at places like Manchester, Birmingham, Nottingham, you'll suddenly find you're in kind of quite low-rise terraced housing, you know, one or two storeys, um, pretty close to the city centre. Now, there's a few reasons for that. You know, there's the fact that, you know, we didn't, we, we got rid of our, our walls around our cities quite early. So we kind of, we sprawled quite early with Victorian uh, technology. But a consequence of that is that that's actually quite bad for our transport system, right? Because we prevent people from living nearby public transport infrastructure. Um, so it's difficult for them to get into the city centre and it forces a reliance on cars um, because of that, um, you know, that kind of low rise sprawl, which is created. However, that's also the case with things like the Greenbelt. So we've crunched the numbers on you know, London's Greenbelt, which is three times the size of London itself. And we reckon you can build about a million houses um, just in walkable buttons around train stations in the Greenbelt, uh, 45 minutes from central London. So we do need kind of both to grow outwards and upwards. And I think just relying just purely on one of those things, as sometimes politicians are you know, keen to do, mm. you know, you're actually kind of making some choices there, which actually you know, undermine some of the prosperity of cities and what makes cities great. Well, um, we were talking about this at a different point, but this, what you're proposing is quite uh, is a very radical redevelopment of the way politicians, the British public, mm -hmm. think about housing. Yeah, a bit. I kind of think the British public is terminally unimaginative, and I just, in, there would have to be such a pivot in support for housing. Like, what what would have to change in like the psyche, etc., for this to be? Would it would would the housing situation have to get to just such an unsustainable point that people are suddenly like, 
oh no, cities should grow or housing yeah. should be built. Like, what are the circumstances in which this yeah. changes? So, so I think it's a couple of things. I think one is exactly that. I think there needs to be just wider social recognition of just how severe the housing crisis is. I mean, you've mentioned that kind of four million figure uh, a few times. I mean, that's really how much we're missing compared to the average European country since 1955. It's about 15% of our housing stock just to get to the European average. So there's a huge deficit and we need to make that up to kind of tackle some of these inequalities and, you know, crush life chances we're really talking about. There's also the pure economic side. So obviously if we do build those 4 million houses, that means we're creating loads of jobs at the same time, right? That means people's disposable incomes are higher. That means they can spend that on the real economy. So connecting that to not just housing issues, but wider issues as well is important. But I think, you know, while it requires us to kind of make changes about how our cities function, I don't think it necessarily means huge cultural changes in that what's being proposed isn't complete free-for-all, you know, no rules, like Mad Max, you know, property <laughs> development. It's thinking about if you follow the rules, then you can build, right? So that kind of system where saying, all right, you know, these are the rules. We've decided what those rules are. We've decided this is how they're going to be applied. If you follow them, great. And I think there is something in how this country talks about housing, and you know, the lack of trust between councils, residents, and developers, where there's a lot of aggro about how unpredictable and how kind of untrustworthy the process is. If we can rebuild trust into that process by making it more certain, mm. I think there is a bit of an envelope for people to accept more change in their built environments than they currently do. Mm. I guess the the point I'd add on to what Ed was asking as well, um, I can't remember, I should, should know whose substack it was that wrote about this, but the, the, the Cheems mindset. Mm. Oh, you know, you, yeah, yes. okay, you know, right. Yes. So... How how do we go from being, you know, um, I hate you building this conservatory within 200 metres of my house to, yes, 4 million homes all across the Greenbelt? Because it's, it's not just public attitudes, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's what role is there for the state in all of this? What role yeah. is there for private developers? And how do we actually kind of galvanise that, that into being an effective house-building machine rather yeah. than what, we, what it is currently? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of... Cheems is kind of like a little pathetic little dog who like, you know, yes. comes up with these excuses for why, you know, things shouldn't happen. You know, I think that does characterize some aspects of how, um, you know, the British state really thinks about its role and thinks about, um, you know, cities and um, the built environment in particular. Not all of it. You know, there are councils and places and people who are kind of really pushing for, um, for big changes and, and big improvements. But I think where it comes down to, you know, baking that in across the entire country is really thinking about some of the other stuff which we're working on in terms of local government reform, in terms of how do you give councils both, well, the resources and also the initiative to want to change their places. Because if we're honest, like most councils like don't have a great reputation among the public at large. Um, I'm broadly seen as, um, you know, could be more effectual and could be more responsive. A lot of that is, comes down to, um, responsibilities Parliament has had in terms of the funding and the system of funding that's been created for councils, you know, the geography and the maps and the responsibilities that councils have. Thinking about how do we let places enjoy true local self-government and have your autonomy to really push through these changes uh, in a way that they're really rewarded for doing so. That's kind of the missing piece of the puzzle, I think, in terms of changing that state behaviour and changing politicians' behaviour to want to drive change rather than to want to stop as much as possible. Mm. Um, that's a, a lovely primer on housing and you guys have done um, some good reports on this so I'd encourage listeners to go and actually read them because there's a lot of detail out there that you can't fit into a conversation like this mainly because Ant wrote them as well I think <laughs> is probably, probably the reason to plug them Small details are big surfaces 
Tight corners or odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured, or tall? Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. We have never had it so good. It's the Politics Show podcast. And something else that we've... Well, we were actually always going to talk about this, right? And you layers and... Is it a good policy? How radical is Sadiq Khan? Yada, yada, yada. But then, mm-hmm. sort of over the weekend, we had Rishi Sunak um, yep. coming out in defence of the humble British yeah, motorist. Yeah, swinging. Yeah. yeah, coming out swinging for those yeah. fucking for pedestrians. Yeah. You get... <laughs> you get 25. <laughs> Breathing your hair. Um, let's talk... So let's, let's talk a little bit about that, I guess. Um, well, uh, maybe I'll just sort of open it up to you mm-hmm. for an opportunity to talk about you, Les, to talk about what that's done to London and whether or not there is really a um, anti-car was is that how he described it anti-motorist mm-hmm. anti-motorist right. policies yeah, yeah. Um, in in Britain yeah sure so I think um, you know air pollution is one of those things right where you know there are some topics which you know you look at and it's a bit of a mixed kind of evidence about you know maybe some things are good maybe not it's not quite as bad as you think. Air pollution is not one of those things, right? <laughs> like everything that comes out is like, oh my god, like air pollution is like, is bad, right? Yeah. You know, regardless of kind of you know whether you know you are kind of you know salad munching hippie or like kind of proper like you know petrol head, you should care about air pollution and want air pollution to be lower. Um, and air pollution is particularly a problem in cities, right? Because you've got all these different sources of emissions, you know, not just cars but also things like wood burners as well. That you know they get in the sky, they fly around, people breathe them in, people get sick. Um, so. Thinking about like how we reduce air pollution is, is an important kind of urban policy problem. I think in terms of you know sort of this kind of claim of the war on the motorist. Um, I think again if we take a step back and we think about you know over the past you know decade and a bit, um, you know train fares have gone up, um, you know bus tickets have gone up, um, you know all, all kinds of public transports become less accessible and more inexpen- more expensive. Fuel duty has not increased in price at all, like o- over that period. And so relatively, driving, motoring has just factually become cheaper relative to other forms of transport. Now, maybe it should, maybe it shouldn't, but still that fact of air pollution being bad, um, driving has got much cheaper, means you've created these congestion problems within London, which are now much worse than they were 10 years ago. So I think in, there's always going to have to be this response from government in terms of how do we mitigate the impact of too much driving or too much pollution within London. Again, maybe Ulysses isn't quite the right way to do it. Maybe, maybe it's, uh, you know, we're supportive of it, but, um, you know, we think it's a good policy and a good idea. But some, some of the responses come out in kind of recent weeks about how it's like not a problem at all, how there's no, you know, actually breathing in fumes and smog is fine. I actually you know, love nitrogen yeah. dioxide. Yeah. It tastes delicious. Just huffing it, right? Yeah, 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 I, I, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In between takes of this, I've got yeah. a bag down here. Yeah. Oh. Um, you know, 
So tackling that, that is important and we should all be thinking about how we try and do it. Mm. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's almost, it's difficult because you feel like, I think it is the case, particularly in what we were just talk, talking about earlier with urban planning, that it's designed for, for car journeys, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's the supermarket in the suburbs, whether it's the out of, out of town um, shopping centre and that also raises access, accessibility questions for people yeah. who can't drive, mm -hmm. um, for people who are too old to drive. Etc. I I really struggle with the idea that you know um, British the British state or British society is oriented yeah. like it's a war on the motorist. Yeah. I I don't think that's yeah the case at all. I mean I mean you've kind of have this paradoxical position where people are sort of claiming that oh there's a war on the motorist and like they're winning right somehow, <laughs> but also that like so also like you know the, everyone in Britain drives right. Yeah. And it's like one of those two things can be true right. You know either sort of you know the, the motorists are being mm -hmm. you know crushed underfoot. Uh, or there are, you know, or like, or, <laughs> yeah, or everyone drives, right? You know, and I think particularly within, you know, the suburbs of big cities, right? Driving is always going to be an important, if not the most important form of transport within urban areas. But thinking again, sort of how can you shift, you know, the five, 10% people who are kind of wavering between driving and cycling or, or driving, getting, getting a bus or uh, a train, if it's convenient for them, that's an important urban policy question, you know, not yeah. just from the air pollution side, but also in terms of climate or almost in terms of, you know, getting quickly and cheaply to, you know, city centre jobs where, you know, wages are higher. There's a whole bunch of benefits that come with that. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely benefits to, you know, some things are always going to be easier drive, driving-wise, mm -hmm. I don't know. You're going to go and do the big, big bi-weekly food shop, yeah, right? totally. You'd much rather put that in the back of a car than sure. carry it in a backpack. Mm -hmm. um, as someone who's done that, etc. <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. But equally... As there are things that are better for driving, there are things that aren't. And I, I think about, you know, um, Europe's busiest shopping street, Oxford Street. Why is that not yeah. pedestrianised? Yeah. Um, I think about low traffic neighbourhoods and a lot of the research that shows that actually the, tra the traffic doesn't get displaced to either side of it. The traffic actually kind of evaporates. Mm -hmm. And if that works in tandem with good public transport, segregated cycle lanes, yeah. all of these things... It's not about stopping people from driving. It's about making the easiest and best way to make the journey being on a bike, walking, yeah. public transport. Yeah. And, and the spatial element really matters as well, right? So it should be local government deciding these things case by case for different places and working out what's right for them, right? So mm. Rishi Sunak's seat in rural affluent North Yorkshire, cars are always going to be the dominant mode there. And that's totally fine, right? But within central London, right, within kind of zone two, you know, London, bits of kind of inner Manchester or Birmingham, that's quite different, right? And actually shifting towards, you know, away from cars and towards other uses, totally possible and has, has all of these benefits as well. So, you know, again, this is why kind of thinking about how do we empower local government? How do we have the right responsibility sitting at the right level? Really important for, um, you know, not just improving state capacity and improving the initiative of government, but also, you know, just getting better local outcomes as well, which we all want. One of my favourite um, sort of bits of public policy making is in Lablana, they the mayor basically announced that he wanted to start, he wanted to pedestrianise basically the entire city centre. And when he announced he wanted to do this, it was enormously unpopular. He mm. was like, he would get assaulted in the street. It was that unpopular. Yeah. Um, continued with it anyway, followed it through, and now, nearly 20 years later, it has something like 90% public approval because it's actually quite nice. Quite yeah. To walk through. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a cliche, but you know, most of the things people hate about cities are things they hate about cars, right? Um, you know, loads of cars jammed into kind of a grey kind of concrete environment. It's really noisy. It's really smelly. It's really dangerous. You can't get anywhere. 
it sucks, right? Mm. Um, but that, exactly that same environment, you know, the like a paint and pedestrianized and made kind of more of a human space, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily have the kind of the economic benefits, you know, that, that we really care about center for cities, but certainly in terms of kind of all those health benefits and lifestyle benefits, well, you know, those are, you know, all really evident. We also kind of had it right in COVID. Do you remember? Yeah. In, in, you walk through central London. Soho was, was like pedestrianized yeah. and yeah. they had alfresco dining. Yes. It was, it was buzzing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, it looked pretty nice. Yeah, and really then, nice. I'm just going to assume it was probably Westminster yeah. City Council took, took, That's that, right. took that away from they us. Took yeah. it away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the government took it away. Nice. Love yeah. that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> great work. Yeah. Back in. yeah. yeah. Get Get over. Yeah. Enjoy, back indoors. Enjoying yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, SUVs. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Get back to your fucking desk. Um, yeah. Just thinking about you, Les, finally, Ant. Mm-hmm. Um, this is probably the last question from me. Is, is, this, is what Sadiq Khan's trying to do quite radical? Is it out there? Is by pushing ULES to the outer boroughs of London by sort of waging this war on air pollution, where does he sit within sort of the field of people who are trying to yeah. do something about air pollution globally? So internationally, it's quite bold. Um, yeah. You know, there's not many places that are, you know, congestion charging in general, um, where, you know, where you're, you're putting prices on, um, you know, people as, as you try and make journeys is quite uncommon generally. Doing it particularly on polluting vehicles is especially kind of uncommon. Uh, and when it has been done, it's often been to quite small areas, such as the current ULES boundary. Having it cover, cover an entire jurisdiction, I don't think as many, if any, places which which are kind of at that level. So, it, you know, uh, I think, um, you know, Sadiq has kind of often kind of, um, you know, uh, criticized many things. But I think on this particular kind of issue, um, you know, it has been quite quite a bold step that the um, that the mayor is taking. Mm, pretty radical. Mm, pretty radical. Um, anything else you'd like to ask, Ed? Like I shouldn't know that you've asked. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to. At least for every city. Oh, oh no, I can't answer that. No, I, I, I love all my cities equally. Yeah, yeah. This is the politician's yeah. answer. We can't yeah. make him choose. What's no. your What's your least favourite city? Edinburgh, Ooh. presumably. If you're If you're no, yeah. Glasgow. I like Edinburgh. I know you do. That's why I'm asking. Aim Aberdeen. <laughs> It's true. It's horrible. Okay. <laughs> For the sake of your inbox. You've we'll, agreed with me. Yeah. <laughs> fine. Yeah. I've, I've agreed with you in the past. And last time we spoke about it on this very podcast, we cut it out of the fucking episode. <laughs> so maybe that won't be there. Um, Ant. Been lovely to have you in. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Really interesting conversation. Um, Centre for Cities. Check out their stuff if you want to know more about yeah, uh, urban economies and how we can make things better in this country. And thank you, Ed. Thank you as well. Thank you, Ollie. <laughs> Thank you for hosting nice. another great episode yeah. of the podcast. That's that's me. That's me. It's nice nice to get some some gratitude and appreciation yeah, yeah. for once. Yeah. Drop a thanks in the comments for Ollie. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, also, we discuss each and every one of the episodes, both myself, Ed, and Ava, on our subreddit. So check it out. R slash Politics Joe. Um, we'll be there once this episode goes live. So see you there, guys. Until then, on the next one. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to that episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it. I reckon you'll also enjoy Unfiltered, our interview podcast. Here's a little taste of the episode with Gary Lineker. I love my life. I enjoy I enjoy fame. People are lovely. It's so easy to be distracted by the tiny percentage on, on Twitter. In the real world, it's not like that at all. I think I've had only two instances in my entire life where people have had a pop. One old lady elbowed me in the back. <laughs> She was on her way to a Tommy Robinson rally. Really? Yes. Okay, nice. An old lady, she gave me, oh, lady car. So we're like, whoa, whoa. Yeah. And then I had another one where I was going shopping, my groceries, and some bloke shouted out of the road, you hate Britain. You hate Britain, don't you? I'm going, 
No, I really love Britain. But anyway. That's Unfiltered with Ollie Dugmore, wherever you get your podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.